NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. President Biden goes to Europe on the agenda, a meeting with King Charles and a NATO summit. Find out more. And new social media platforms seem to be popping up every day. Can't tell your threads from your blue skies? We've got you covered. Plus, electronic music artist Aluna is out with a new album and she wants you on the dance floor. That intimate experience where You've got your own space to dance in and you just really don't care what anyone else thinks of you and you're sweating and you're drinking water. (laughs) Drink water. It's Sunday, July 9th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden leaves this morning for Europe. His visit will include the annual NATO summit. A major issue this year is whether to admit Sweden at his 32nd member. Ukraine is also wants to join the clients. Members may consider steps Ukraine should take before being accepted as a NATO member. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is heading home after a four-day trip to China. At a news conference before leaving Beijing, Yellen said the talks were direct and productive and a step towards putting the U.S.-China relationship on a sure footing. The U.S. and China have significant disagreements. Those disagreements need to be communicated clearly and directly. But President Biden and I do not see the relationship between the U.S. and China through the frame of great power conflict. We believe that the world is big enough for both of our countries to thrive. She said both nations have an obligation to find a way to live together and share in global prosperity. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is being sued after deploying a buoy barrier in the Rio Grande. It's being called a violation of the U.S. Treaty with Mexico. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports. The suit claims that Abbott does not have the legal authority to put a 1,000-foot-long barrier in the water. Eagle Pass resident Jesse F. Fuentes, who filed the suit, says the barrier illegally interferes with the flow of the Rio Grande. And that river is protected federally protected by so many agencies. And our concern is, did they follow the proper protocols? Fuentes also says the barrier prevents him from running his river kayaking business. In response to the suit, Abbott tweeted, quote, this is going to the Supreme Court. Texas has a constitutional right to secure our border. I'm David Martin Davies in San Antonio. A judge ruled in March, Phoenix must clear out the biggest homeless encampment in the state. Tomorrow's the deadline to show compliance. From member station KJZZ, Kirsten Dorman reports. Local residents and business owners in Phoenix filed the lawsuit last year calling the encampment known as The Zone a public health and safety concern and claiming the city wasn't doing enough to address the issue. Rachel Milne is the director of the City of Phoenix Office of Homeless Solutions. I am happy with what we've accomplished so far. And really what that is, is we've shut down three blocks in the area where people were camping. The City of Phoenix is also facing a lawsuit from the American Civil Liberties Union of Arizona, which says the city has been violating the constitutional rights of unhoused people during encampment cleanup sweeps. For NPR News, I'm Kirsten Dorman in Phoenix. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The city of Worcester has launched a pilot program to send crisis response teams on emergency mental health calls. Dale Klein is with UMass Memorial's Community Health Link, which is contracting with Worcester to run the program. Klein says when somebody calls 911 because of a mental health or substance use crisis, clinicians and case managers will go with police. We're able to help de-escalate. We're able to kind of bring some stillness and calmness to those moments. Um, And then being able to assess the need and get them the right help as quickly as possible. After the pilot phase, the plan calls for crisis teams to respond to some calls themselves. The program also is meant to help reduce arrests and reduce the use of hospital emergency rooms. At least three people died in separate tragedies in New Hampshire lakes, ponds, and rivers on Friday. New Hampshire State Police shared the news of all three incidents. A 41-year-old woman from Beverly, Massachusetts, drowned in a pond in Madison. A Massachusetts Boy Scout died in a boating accident while at a camp in Gilmanton. A 40-year-old man was also found dead in a Manchester River. Some service changes on the MBTA's red line will take effect tomorrow. Shuttles will replace weekday evening trains between South Station and Braintree after 7.30 this week and next. Shuttles will also replace trains between JFK UMass and North Quincy starting around 8.45 p.m. beginning Tuesday. Other service disruptions are coming later this month on the Green Line. The city of Framingham is holding a Health Connector Fest today. The festival at Framingham State University will allow people to learn about their health insurance options. The event also features live music, lawn games, and food. It kicks off at noon. At Fenway Park this afternoon, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the A's. Last night, the Revs lost to the Red Bulls 2-1. to one. In the forecast for the Boston area, clouds today and highs in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden heads to Europe. His first stop is the United Kingdom, then it's on to Lithuania for a NATO summit. A big priority for Biden on this trip is highlighting the strength of alliances and the possible expansion of NATO. In London, awaiting his arrival is NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Hi, Asma. Hi there, Aisha. So let's begin with the UK. What's on the agenda for Biden there? Well, this is the first time Biden is meeting King Charles as king. Uh, The two have met, of course, multiple times when Charles was formerly known as the Prince of Wales. They recently met back in 2021 at a climate summit in Glasgow. Both, you know, Biden and the king have tried to really take on global leadership roles to combat climate change. And the two men are expected to discuss the issue when they meet at Windsor Castle tomorrow. Uh, Biden will also meet with British Prime Minister Vichy Sunak. And this is notably their sixth time meeting since Sunak came into office less than a year ago. Uh, The two leaders will likely discuss, among other issues, the war in Ukraine. 
Speaking of Ukraine, um, you know, Biden is heading to NATO's annual summer meeting, taking place, mm -hmm. of course, with this backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what is the White House message heading into this summit? Well, Biden is planning to give a big speech in Vilnius, which is in Lithuania. That's the site, as you mentioned, of this year's NATO summit. And it was once part of the former Soviet Union. Uh, you know, this White House has focused a lot on rebuilding ties with allies that it says were severed during the Trump years. Uh, take a listen to Jake Sullivan previewing the trip. He's Biden's national security advisor. Thanks in large part to President Biden's leadership, NATO is stronger, more energized and more united than ever. But, you know, while this alliance has been united in supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression, experts tell me there appear to be some cracks forming. You're seeing that with Turkey and Hungary, both of whom have been reluctant to sign off on Sweden joining NATO. So Sweden applied more than a year ago. So what is the holdup? You know, there were expectations that this issue would be resolved ahead of this year's NATO summit, but that doesn't look likely. Uh, you know, the big holdup has been Turkey, which believes Sweden is not doing enough to clamp down on in groups that it views as terrorists. Uh, you know, but really experts also tell me that Sweden is caught in the middle. Uh, Stephen Cook is with the Council on Foreign Relations. I think it's not just about Sweden. I think that that desire for the Turks to demonstrate that they have power and influence and can shape the alliance or block things within the alliance has much to do with the relationship with the United States and wanting to be treated as an equal. And Turkey sees Sweden's membership really as leverage to some degree. So, but, but leverage for what exactly? Like, what does Turkey want? Yeah, I mean, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has made it clear he wants the United States to approve the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Uh, that would, of course, have to be approved by Congress. And you've seen some senators, including the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a Democrat, Bob Menendez, who've publicly uh, expressed opposition to the sale. Uh, I will say Biden has made it clear that he is open to it, and he really wants Sweden in NATO. So there's a growing sense in Washington that the F-16s could be a bargaining chip. Uh, but Aisha, you know, experts also tell me that there's a bit of a personal dynamic at play here. Biden and Erdogan don't have a particularly warm relationship. Uh, back during the 2020 presidential campaign, Biden even once referred to Turkey's president as an autocrat. Uh, there is a possibility they could meet on the sidelines of the NATO summit. And, you know, experts tell me perhaps that could help smooth over the relationship. In the uh, about 30 seconds we have left, what does it say about the unity of NATO that it's taken more than a year to resolve this issue of Sweden joining the, the alliance? Yeah, you know, I will say the alliance has been united again in response to Russia's invasion, but it's this issue of expansion that's been troublesome. Uh, and it's not just about Sweden. You know, a huge looming question ahead of this NATO summit is Ukraine. Uh, the other day in an interview with CNN, Ukraine's president called on Biden to invite Ukraine into NATO now. Uh, the White House is open to Ukraine joining the alliance, but it's not articulated a timetable. And the White House says there are still reforms needed in Ukraine for it to come up to NATO standards. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Halid. Asma, thank you so much. It was good talking to you, Aisha.
the International Atomic Energy Agency on Tuesday approved Japan's plan to release over 1 million tons of treated nuclear wastewater from a nuclear plant. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station was destroyed in the magnitude 9.0 earthquake, an ensuing tsunami that devastated much of the country's east coast in 2011. But the plan to dump the contaminated water into the ocean later this summer faces a lot of domestic and international opposition. Bob Richmond is a research professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and is the director of Kiwalo Marine Laboratory. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Aisha. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so the IAEA says that the plan is sound because it went through a two-year assessment period and that the release of the water will have, quote, negligible radiological impact on people and the environment. So should that reassure people who are worried about this plan? For me and a number of my colleagues, our answer is at this point, we're not convinced. We're not saying that there's no way, but we are saying because we're scientists and data-driven that there are insufficient data to be able to demonstrate the feeling that this is going to be safe. And I really should take a moment to clarify the International Atomic Energy Agency, their job is to see that their plan adheres to standards and adhering to standards is not the same thing as guaranteeing safety. What are the specific concerns that you have? There are missing data on a number of the radionuclides of greatest concern. There's a lot of discussion of one in particular, uh, tritium, that's coming out in the uh, what we call tritiated water from the cooling. And so I agree. I've been in animated discussions with nuclear chemists and nuclear physicists saying if you calculate the concentration of radionuclides and the volume of the Pacific Ocean, the dilution is great and it's going to be tiny. And that's where the opinion that IAEA presented was they feel that the effects would be negligible. Dilution is a chemical process. You can calculate it out. And if the ocean was a sterile vessel, it would work, but it's not. Um, you have phytoplankton at the bottom of the food web, microscopic algae that photosynthesize. They pick up uh, a number of the radionuclides, notably tritium and carbon-14. And so these can be taken up and then they can be passed through the food web to other organisms and a number of radionuclides can be bioaccumulated. And this is a pathway for which it can get into people through seafood. So do we know then how the, the release of the wastewater will have an impact over the next 30 or 40 years on marine life? Yeah, so we don't want to be alarmist and, you know, scare people to say that, you know, the world's going to end and don't eat anything from the ocean. That's not the case. Um, it is interesting to note that as we understand and we've been studying, um, this is very much what's called a transboundary issue. Uh, the water release is going to occur a kilometer offshore from uh, Fukushima, but it's not going to stay in Japan's waters. It's going to spread throughout the Pacific uh, through ocean currents, also through organisms like fish, tuna, others. So we know it will move across biologically. And interestingly enough, radionuclides can even adhere to plastics, particularly PET. When I talk to the physicist and the chemist, they say, we, well, we're assuming everything is going to go well. If you look at the history of how we got here, I think the assumption that everything is going to go to plan is one that has to be clearly uh, evaluated, and I don't think that will be the case. Has this been done before, this sort of release? There are categories for nuclear disasters uh, from one to seven. There have only been two number sevens. Uh, the first was Chernobyl, 
And then the second one was Fukushima. So this was about a tenth of what happened at Chernobyl. What's different about Fukushima is this is primarily marine release. So in answer to your question, this is not a normal operation. But challenges are also opportunities. And this is an opportunity for Japan and the IAEA to provide forward-thinking leadership and do a far better job. China said on Thursday that it's banning seafood imports from 10 regions in Japan, including Fukushima. Is that valid or is that too far to start banning seafood imports? Yeah, for me, again, I'm data-driven. And, you know, you pointed out the timeline. Um, This is supposed to go on for over 30 years. And so not only is this a transboundary issue, but it's a transgenerational issue. That's a concern because many of the problems won't show up immediately. And once it does show up, um, you're not going to get the genie back in the bottle. So, you know, should there be concern? Absolutely. Are there data missing to answer these fundamental questions? Yes. Do we know that uh, radionuclides like cesium and strontium have been picked up already by sea life? The answer is yes. Levels have been very low. So again, I don't want to overstate the issue. But, you know, as an environmental biologist, I strongly adhere to what's called a precautionary principle. In the absence of data showing something is safe, you don't assume that it's safe. You rather put in those protective measures to be very conservative. Japanese authorities are saying that in order to move ahead with decommissioning the damaged plant, they have to get rid of the water. What are the alternatives to dumping it into the ocean? We strongly recommended that they evaluate the use of putting that water into concrete to be used on site and around that area. And it was everything from deflection to denial. And our concern, once again, me as a marine biologist, is the health of the oceans and the people who depend on it. We need to step away from continuing to use the ocean as the ultimate dumping ground for everything we don't want on land. And this is a really good place to start. That's Bob Richman. He is a research professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818, and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a basketball league for women over 50 called Granny Basketball has gained momentum, and the national championship is set for next weekend in Iowa. Join us at City Space later this month to enjoy an evening of jazz and blues with Allie McGurk, the singer headlines City Space's next Sound On Music Festival. That's Thursday, July 27th. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapped up a four-day visit to China today. She says the meetings with officials were direct and productive, but the two nations have significant disagreements. In Sudan, fighting between the military and a rival paramilitary faction is now in its 12th week. 
The Ministry of Health says at least 22 people were killed in an airstrike yesterday in the western city of Amdurun. And the National Weather Service warns a heat wave is likely to continue for a few more days in Florida and parts of the southwest U.S. Phoenix, Arizona has been under an excessive heat warning since July 1st. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Facebook's parent company, Meta, dropped a new app called Threads, and it's a huge hit. And you may be thinking, another social media platform? Well, that's what I thought. So we called Naomi Nix. She's a reporter covering social media companies at The Washington Post. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, first introduce us to this newest edition, Threads. Um, I'm on it. I did get on it. But what is it and why has it been so successful? Because I'm not really posting on it too much yet. Yeah, well, you are among, it sounds like, the more than 70 million people who've given it a try. 70 million? (laughs) It's been wildly successful for Meta. Even though actually the concept of threads is nothing new. It's like your regular text-based social media app that looks a lot like Twitter, except it's not run by Elon Musk. You know, Twitter is a place where a lot of people get their news, you know, follow some big breaking news event. But the head of Instagram, Adam Mosseri, has said he wants threads to be more than just a space for the news. What are the possible implications of that? It's probably important to kind of draw some distinctions here. Threads is um, an app that's intimately connected to Instagram. And I think what Adam was hinting at is that the communities around Instagram like are more lifestyle oriented, right? And Twitter has really had, you know, more of a focus on like, this is the place where world events happen. This is the place where news happens. And so what Adam you know, the head of Instagram is trying to say is we think we can create a text-based platform like on Twitter, but that doesn't have as much news and political content that brings the company so much regulatory scrutiny, so much controversy. Um, And I think he got a lot of pushback from that. You know, they kind of said, look, if it's a text-based app and journalists are here and the newsmakers are here, right, politicians have already joined threads, that the political problems that the company has faced on Facebook and Instagram are going to follow to threads as well. Mm. So there are other apps out there. Threads is the, seems to be the big new dog in town. Um, But what about this app, Blue Sky? What is that? Blue Sky, it has an interesting backstory. It actually started as like a side project at Twitter, um, but has since gone independent. 
and it's being run by former Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. And it looks and, and feels a lot like Twitter um, in that it's like text-based. You know, it's part of this sort of new movement of social media apps that are, are really trying to um, become decentralized. And so the idea of like sort of decentralized social networking is that like the social media app won't just be run by like sort of one person or one group, but that different communities on the site will sort of create their own rules of the road, their own um, ways of sort of moderating each other. So who does that, that idea of like that decentralized community that Blue Sky is 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 trying to put forward, like who, who does that cater to? Like who are the types of people who would really work well or that would appeal to? It definitely appeals to the companies themselves. Social media platforms have long been in a tough spot when it comes to like moderating their platforms because Republicans will say in the United States that the tech platforms are doing too much to moderate their platforms and to rid them of things like hate speech or calls to violence um, or inappropriate misinformation. And then they also face criticisms on the left from activists and regulators who say they're not doing enough. Um, and so one sort of benefit to a decentralized system is that the companies largely get out of the business of having to be the deciders, having to play referee. I think also that there's some appeal to users who do want to like a specific community of people um, that they're trying to interact with, who, who will know their language. We've heard of Black Twitter or a particular sports. And so they all sort of come together. And so I think, you know, that idea of like building communities who understand each other might appeal to people. You mentioned Black Twitter, but now there's this new app called Spill, and it's a, a social media site that's supposed to be catered towards Black people, but inclusive of everyone. Are we seeing people head to that site? Yeah, so Spill is still in beta version. Um, but it was founded by two former Twitter employees. And yes, the idea is to cater to Black Twitter. We're seeing social media sites, certainly Twitter is one example, walk back their content moderation standards. And some people of color on social media have raised concerns that that will create an inherently less safe place to be on social media for people of color and other sort of vulnerable users. And so I think that's another potential pro of, a, of an app like Spill, hmm. that it might give a sense of security to communities who might not inherently feel as safe on other platforms. That's Washington Post reporter Naomi Nix. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of Donovan X. Ramsey's earliest childhood memories was of Michelle from down the street. Every night as I was falling asleep, she would start, you know, her activity, and that consisted of playing loud music. She loved If Only You Knew by Patti LaBelle, and she would play it on a loop. And um, and I felt connected to her, and I, you know, came to, to understand as I got older that she was dealing with addiction, that she was a crack addict. Decades later, he's written a book called When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. 
It's a work of nonfiction told through the eyes of several people, including an addict, a drug dealer, and a politician. He begins the book by describing the lives of the people before crack cocaine hit their neighborhoods. That was super important to me as somebody whose community was impacted by this, as a, you know, a Black person, as a Black journalist, because our lives are often treated as though they have no context and no meaning. So being a child of the 80s, I was born in 1987, I have never existed in a world where crack did not exist. And I desperately wanted to know what my community was like before crack. I have to say, I was really struck by the story of Sean because Sean grew up in the exact same projects in Newark as my dad and his family. So hearing the story of crack in Newark was extremely close to home for me. But tell me about Sean, because he he got involved in another side of the crack epidemic, which he became a dealer. Yeah, Sean McRae, you know, born in the early 70s, he uh, grows up in the projects, right? And he's a part of what people don't realize, an incredible community in the projects that you can't, you know, stack hundreds of people on top of each other and not create a community. He ended up, despite having a very promising academic career and getting a scholarship to play basketball all through Catholic school and into college, he was still drawn into that street life because of his connection to his community. And also because as a young man growing up in the 80s, he had such a desire for more. And crack was this incredible opportunity for guys like him to make some real money. So, you know, I liken Sean to young white men who went West during the gold rush, that he was doing something incredibly risky. And I think many would say dangerous and stupid, but because it gave him a possibility for something that he wouldn't have otherwise. I feel like what you capture with Sean was something that I think that a lot of people don't fully understand, which is like for him to have really left he would have really had to leave his community. It was really important for me with Sean to kind of pull back the veil of the super predator myth. Hillary Clinton very infamously, you know, was on camera giving a speech about how young Black men that were selling drugs were super predators who, quote, needed to be brought to heel. And the truth about Sean is that he was just an average kid who saw a way out. And anybody that's come from tough neighborhood like I did, like like Sean did, like many Black folks in America do, that you are told that your goal should be to get out of your neighborhood. And no one that makes that your goal ever accounts for the isolation, the loneliness yeah. of having to be mm-hmm. the only one, being the first yeah. one in every room that you go in for the rest of your life. And he wanted to stay connected to his friends. Most drug dealers were not kingpins. They were making enough money to to buy a car, to pay their mom's rent. And that was Sean's position. And I think that, you know, that's not to excuse the fact that he was selling poison, something that he uh, grappled with, but those were the options available to him. When you think about the crack epidemic, the way that it hit, particularly Black neighborhoods, like it's it's difficult to even like wrap your head around. How do you count the cost of that? 
You know, it is, um, I think, nearly impossible to even measure the devastation when you think about all that our cities could have been and all that our communities could have been had it not been for crack. But I think that despite of our inability to measure crack's impact, there are some clear things that, that we owe the people who survived it as a way of trying to repair the damage that, that we can measure, like sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine that still exists, despite the fact that those substances are chemically identical, that they're the same substance. We owe it to the folks that lost so much to end that. We owe it to those folks to end mandatory minimum sentences. We also owe it to those people to fight back against the, the fear and the shame that created a space for drug abuse and addiction in the first place, but that also created a space for a completely draconian response. Do you think that much has changed since then? We're currently in the middle of another drug epidemic with opioids and fentanyl. And if so, do you think it's because the nature of this epidemic is so different? I can be completely frank. <laughs> yes, there yeah, please. There's a lot more compassion for opioid addicts now because the face of opioid addiction is white folks in the middle of the country. I think that's just that that's just true that the average American feels much closer to that addict than they did to the crack addict. And the shame of of it is that addiction is addiction. And also that because we refuse to have compassion for crack addicts, we missed an opportunity to fix the problem, right? That people who are struggling with opioid addiction now and don't have the services and resources they need in place don't have them because we didn't have a public health response to crack, because all that we created was this huge dragnet that we applied across communities of color. So now white folks are getting caught up in that dragnet. And now everybody thinks, okay, we got to do something about this. And, and I hope that we do, because wrong is wrong and right is right. Do you feel like the lessons of the crack epidemic have really been fully learned? No, they haven't. Just because there might be more compassion for uh, drug users and drug addicts doesn't mean that we're smarter about policy solutions. It doesn't mean that we are more diligent, right, about sticking to what we know is right, that that fear and that shame can always come in and confuse people. What I see is this reinvigoration of the culture wars that villainizes and criminalizes the most vulnerable people. That's Donovan X. Ramsey, the author of When Crack Was King. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
Later this week, the Cedar Rapids Sizzlers defend their national title in Decorah, Iowa. They are a women's basketball team and they're three-time champions in what's called granny basketball for women over 50, though not necessarily grandmas. Greg Eklund reports. At the Iowa Senior Games Tournament, a huddle of six women break after a timeout. Diana Marker is their co-captain and coach. She's 72. She says more older women are taking on granny basketball. Their league's theme, off their rockers. Women are thinking, so what if I'm 50? I can still do this. Granny basketball is played six on six. Unlike the conventional game, there are restrictions to where players can move on the court. It's adapted from the way the girls' high school game was played for decades. We have modified the rules so that people won't get injured playing because you can't afford to go through a year or two of rehab, you know, when you're in your 70s. The uniforms are inspired by those that women wore 100 years ago. That means penny jerseys with a big bow tied in front, not unlike sailors in the Navy. From the waist down, the grannies play in black bloomers and colorful knee-high socks. Player Linda Jennings said at first she thought the uniform was too ridiculous. I just said I'm not wearing those outfits. Historically, women's uniforms covered their entire body. They've preserved this regulation by inventing something called a technical flesh foul. That's when flesh is exposed below the neck. Jennings said eventually she relented. So it took a couple years. I retired when I was 55 and then it was like, Ah, what the heck, who cares, I'm old now, it doesn't matter if I have to wear those goofy outfits. Granny Basketball is a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2005. Now it has more than 500 players in 10 states. Michelle Clark, who's retired from the healthcare industry, is Granny Basketball's executive director. Gosh, we're just getting contacts all the time from new women wanting to join the league. They hear about Granny Basketball, they want to learn more. Um, and they want to be a part of it, so we try to connect them with teams in their area. Granny basketball has attracted attention from many places. Women's Final Four star Caitlin Clark of the Iowa Hawkeyes has been garnering the headlines this year. She says when she learned about this team, she was an instant fan. Oh my gosh, I might have to check them out. That's tough. That's sick. That's awesome. As three-time national champions, one might think the Cedar Rapids Sizzlers could flash a little bling with either a ring, a bracelet, or a necklace. But on the subject of championship jewelry, Diana Marker says... No, I don't think so. The Sizzlers, in their humble manner, took care of business at this most recent tournament. They won it. Now they're on to their biggest challenge, the national championship in Decorah. Any team thinking it's got a shot at dethroning them just might be off their rockers. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. State fire officials are warning people on Martha's Vineyard to be vigilant after unexploded fireworks shells washed up on a beach last week. State police and other officials responded to Chappaquiddick to remove the shells July 5th, the day after Edgartown's fireworks display. The fire marshal's office says anyone who sees a device on the beach should leave it alone and call 911. The state license for Central Maine Pyrotechnics has been temporarily suspended. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation, the MBTA, and the Boston Public Library are teaming up to provide free reading materials during the Sumner Tunnel shutdown. The materials include digital newspapers, magazines, audiobooks, and ebooks, and will be available at more than 50 subway, bus, ferry, and commuter rail locations. Riders can scan posted QR codes to get started. The Sumner Tunnel is closed for repairs through August 31st. In sports at Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the A's. It's 72 degrees in Boston with some patchy fog around this morning. A mostly cloudy Sunday and highs in the upper 70s. A chance of showers tonight. Tomorrow, some showers likely with a chance of thunderstorms and Monday's highs in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, I ask Mariska Hargitay, Captain Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU, if her role carries over into her real life. Are you a good detective? Are you, like, good at finding your husband's lost phone, for example? Well, I found his first two mistresses. Ooh. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. You can find us just by staying tuned to this station. Catch us for this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it may be a beautiful summer day wherever you are, but don't go outside just yet because it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us as always is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi, Will. Good morning, Aisha. And so, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Darwin Lang of Mandan, North Dakota. I said, name a sports facility in two words. It's a general term, not a specific place. I said three consecutive letters in the first word also appear consecutively in the same order in the second word. And if you reverse these three letters, you'll name something seen in this sports facility. What is it? There is a near answer, tennis center, which has net backward in 10. Unfortunately, the letters of 10 are not in the same order in center. So that wasn't quite right. The correct answer was racetrack, which has C-A-R spelled backward in both words, and a car is found on a racetrack. Oh, okay. Well, but overall, everybody did an amazing job with this week's puzzle. 
because there were nearly 1,300 correct submissions. And out of those submissions, Jean Kendrick of Salem, Oregon is this week's winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aisha and Will. And so how long have you been playing the puzzle? So uh, my boyfriend at the time got me really hooked on the puzzle and we play together and um, that man is now my husband. Oh, and I, I hear that your husband actually won a couple of years ago. So it has been a strong marital rivalry here. <laughs> yeah, every week we play together. And in this case, I was able to solve it completely on my own. And um, he was still sitting there scratching his head. <laughs> well, see, and that's why you're here and he is not right now. <laughs> so, all right, Gene, then are you ready to play the puzzle? As long as it's not geography, boy, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm not good with that either. All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Gene and Aisha, you're in luck. There's no geography today. Every answer today is a familiar phrase in the form blank and blank in which I've changed one letter of each of the words in the blanks. You tell me the phrases. For example, if I said shot and well, you would say show and tell, because show and tell changes one letter in each of the words shot and well. Okay. Here we go. Number one is loft, L-O-F-T, and sound, S-O-U-N-D. Lost and found. Lost and found. You got it. Crush, C-R-U-S-H, and barn, B-A-R-N. Crush and barn. Crush and barn. Oh, my. Let's see. Um, Here's your hint. Change the vowels. Change the Oh, how about crash and burn? Crash and burn. You got it. Nicked, N-I-C-K-E-D, and lime, L-I-M-E. Not something and time, is it? No. You would think so, but no, it's no. not. Keep it's, thinking. It's money. It's nickel and dime. You got it. Nickel and dime. Good. Collars, C-O-L-L-A-R-S, and dents, D-E-N-T-S. Another money one. I think this one's dollars and cents. You got it. Kits, K-I-T-S, and sell, S-E-L-L. Well, you know, Will, I'm not one to kiss and tell. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Noon, N-O-O-N, and Cranky, C-R-A-N-K-Y. Noon and Cranky. Hmm. Hmm. Any any oh, ideas, oh. Aisha? Maybe uh, a nook and cranny. Oh, there we go. Yeah, nook and cranny. Thank you. Nook and cranny. Good one. <laughs> Try this one. Sure, S-U-R-E, and dimple, D-I-M-P-L-E. Sure and dimple. Pure and simple. Oh, that was fast. Punt, P-U-N-T, and heck, H-E-C-K. Hunt and peck. Oh, you're good. And here's your last one. Hike, H-I-K-E, and seed, S-E-E-D. Hike and hide and seek. Hide and seek. You got it. Good job. Oh, wow. You did, you did a great job, Gene. And I loved your delivery <laughs> on the answer. Thank you for your help, though, <laughs> on that nook and cranny. 
Oh, yeah, no problem. You had great flair. How do you feel? Oh, uh, relieved that it wasn't, you know, Monaco and Morocco. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did an excellent job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jean, what member station do you listen to? I listen to KOPB out of Portland, Oregon. That's Jean Kendrick of Salem, Oregon. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Will. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Peter Gwynn, who writes for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Take the first name of a famous movie director, write it in upper and lowercase letters, rotate the third letter of this name 180 degrees, and you'll get the name of the main character in one of this director's most popular movies. Who is it? So again, first name of a famous movie director, write it in upper and lowercase letters, rotate the third letter of this name 180 degrees, and you'll get the name of the main character in one of this director's most popular movies. Who is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, July 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. If you thought that puzzle was hard, try spending a week relaxing with your family. Vacations and holidays are super challenging. I just came off one on the 4th of July, so I know firsthand. (laughs) Tomorrow on Morning Edition, some science to keep you cool when the kids make you hot under the collar at the lake or the amusement park. There's new research showing that a simple 10-minute exercise can help you stay calm and even upbeat during stress or anxiety. Hear about it tomorrow morning by listening live at your station's website at npr.org or by tuning in. Being the only Black professional in an office can be draining. Electronic music artist Aluna has similar feelings about her workplace, studios, and stages. And in the arena of dance music, where it feels like there is little minority representation, she is raising her voice. What did I come here to do? The English artist, who is also part of the duo, Aluna George, has just released her second album. It's called Mycelium, and it documents her quest for self-empowerment. Aluna joins us now from L.A. Welcome. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing all right. So uh, this album has an intriguing conceptual framework. Mycelium is like, that's like the roots of fungus. What about, like, this life form inspired you on this album? Well, in this album, I was becoming an advocate for all the changes I want to make in the dance music industry. And 
I'd knock on the doors of the people with power and money and control and sort of ask them to change the way they do things and be more diverse, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And that really didn't work for me. Um, I kind of started to work more organically with just anti-racist allies, friends, growing change that way. Was it something particular about the image of mycelium that grabbed you? I think I'm more inspired by the science of it, this cell network that grows randomly. And then as it finds nutrients and other information, it starts to create channels that distributes it to other areas that are needed. I really thought that I was like fascinating. It was like, okay, I can do that with communities. I can do that with people. It's like building something together. Do you have an an example of a song that you feel like really exemplified that on the album? Absolutely. Um, I think that Oh The Glamour is a perfect example of that. Glamour has always been a way for queer people to escape the reality of being disempowered. Like, is is that part of what drew you to the words of the song, or did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people of color, the pandemic, that pressure, especially economically, and then George Floyd has this almost combustible effect, like the change that you have to go through to really survive that. But often to pull out of adversity and oppression, the LGBTQ community has used glamour. Glamour signifies a much higher and much potent form of joy that Mm. has the power to pull you out. Because trying to aim for averageness and normalcy, and for, for me personally, has never been something I can achieve. Like I grew up the only black girl in an all white town. So for me to try and aim at normal, never gonna happen. You know, you have a a song on the album, Supernova, um, and you talk about, in that song, about not needing to pick a lane and letting go of shame. from the way you grew up? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think I am a connoisseur of being an outcast. What I found as I started to break out of my childhood uh, city is that so many people feel like fish out of water. So many people experience this moment where they leave the place that they've grown up in, find themselves in a new land, and it, all of a sudden, you know, you just don't feel like you're at home anymore. So where are you home? Are you at home on the dance floor? Absolutely. I mean, dancing and like completely losing my sense of reality. I was healed for another however long until the next time. Do you think that's what sometimes people don't get about dance music? Like they may think that it's more frivolous or it's just not as deep. I think that can happen really easily. I think that... Um, 
I would say that anyone who thinks that that's the whole vision of dance music is missing out. Because what you really want is that intimate experience where you've got your own space to dance in and you just really don't care what anyone else thinks of you. You don't really know what you're doing. You're surprising yourself and you're sweating and you're drinking water. <laughs> Drink water. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's an incredible evolutionary process. One of the last songs on your album is called Beggin'. And, and like you sing unapologetically about being someone else's weakness. Like what does this mean uh, to you? Um, I know my own value, but sometimes other people don't know that until they see what I can do with their raw, raw materials. Once people realize what they have and then they want more of it, it's like, well, that's not really gonna happen. Yeah, it's too late. You you missed your chance now. Yeah. <laughs> or underestimating them and now they're in your life and there's so much more to handle than you you ever thought and I like that idea kind of Trojan horse I'm I, I can come across as pretty understated I like I like that about the way that I do things obviously this is a dance album what type of advice do you have for people who want to maybe get into dance music um, but maybe they're a little shy and they don't know where to begin dance music is all over the world and there's all different types of dance music it's not just eurocentric sounding house and techno there's so much that could be your entry point like try try to listen to your danceometer What's a danceometer? It's a tool inside your body. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's you developing your own taste um, for what works for your body. Whatever makes that easier to get more energy into and to get more movement in your body naturally, that's your danceometer working. That's English musician Aluna. Her new album is Mycelium. It's out now. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Start the week tomorrow with Rupa Shanoi and 90.9 WBUR. You'll get the story on extreme heat in Arizona. Also, you'll hear about shifting attitudes towards marriage in the U.S. Listen again Monday morning on the radio or tell your smart speaker to play WBUR. It's 72 degrees in Boston with some patchy fog around this morning, a mostly cloudy Sunday and highs in the upper 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The U.S. is sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. We talked to someone who's experienced them in battle. You're talking about several hundred thousand unexploded pieces of ammunition that are littering the battlefield that civilians can pick up. Young children can pick up. And what's next for college diversity officers now that the Supreme Court has struck down affirmative action in admissions? Plus, writer and director Savannah Leaf discusses her new movie, Earth Mama, about a black mother fighting for her children. All that and much more. It's Sunday, July 9th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden heads to Europe today for a series of high-stakes meetings with stops in the United Kingdom, Finland, and Lithuania. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. President Biden will first travel to London to meet with King Charles and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says Biden will then head to Lithuania to take part in a two-day NATO summit where the war in Ukraine is expected to top the agenda. When President Putin launched this war, he expected that Western unity would fracture, that NATO would break, that our support to Ukraine would wither over time. He was wrong. NATO leaders will also try to break the deadlock over Sweden's bid to join the alliance. Biden will wrap up his trip with a stop in Finland on Thursday for a meeting with Nordic leaders. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapped up a four-day visit to Beijing today. She described her meetings with Chinese officials as direct and productive. The U.S. climate envoy is urging China to boost its international cooperation on tackling global warming. China has a vast renewable energy program but is also increasing its coal mine production. John Kerry told the BBC it's vital to find common ground with Beijing. It's the largest emitter in the world. 
and we need China to cooperate, and we need to cooperate with China. People are sort of in this standoff, but we can't afford to be, which is why President Biden has just had the Treasury Secretary in China talking about economics, but who also talked about climate. And uh, there will be other visits. And what we're trying to do is change the dynamic between our nations. Kerry is scheduled to visit China later this week to restart high-level talks. The National Weather Service is warning people in Arizona and South Florida to avoid the sun this weekend due to record-setting temperatures. NPR's Juliana Kim has more in the story. Over the next few days, Phoenix is forecast to reach highs of 106 to 115 degrees, with the worst of the heat forecast for midweek. The city has already been under an excessive heat warning since July 1st, and it's slated to end on July 16. But forecasters say it's likely that the extreme heat will last well beyond that. In South Florida, with the afternoon heat index ranging from 105 to 109, a heat advisory has been issued for most of Saturday. Health experts say when the heat index rises to 103 degrees, people can experience heart-related cramps, exhaustion, and even a stroke if they're outside too long. Those conditions will likely continue until Friday. Juliana Kim, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. State fire officials are warning people to be vigilant after unexploded fireworks shells washed up on a beach in Martha's Vineyard last week. State police and other officials responded to Chappaquiddick to remove the 25 shells on July 5th, the day after Edgartown's fireworks display. Fire Marshal spokesperson Jake Wark says beachgoers should be on the lookout for more shells. Our main goal in putting this information out is so that anyone who sees a similar device or an unknown device on the beach knows to leave it alone. Uh, Call 911 uh, and let the professionals who are trained and have specialized protective equipment, let those professionals deal with them. The state fire marshal says the vendor, Central Maine Pyrotechnics, may have intentionally thrown the shells into the ocean. The company's state license has been temporarily suspended. The company's president, Stephen Masson, says the shells did not light because they were wet from rain and fell into the water. A 20-year-old man is facing charges for allegedly killing a 19-year-old Vermont police officer in a crash. Officials say on Friday, Tate Room led police in Rutland on a chase before crossing the center lane and crashing into two cruisers. That crash killed part-time officer Jessica Ebbinghausen. She was set to start training to become a full-time officer next month. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation, the MBTA, and the Boston Public Library are teaming up to provide free reading materials during the Sumner Tunnel shutdown. The materials include digital newspapers, magazines, audiobooks, and e-books. The free digital content will be available at more than 50 subway, bus, ferry, and commuter rail locations. Riders can scan posted QR codes to get started. The tunnel remains closed for repairs through August 31st. At Fenway Park this afternoon, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the A's. It's 72 degrees in Boston with some patchy fog this morning. Clouds around, highs today in the upper 70s. A chance of showers tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Some showers likely tomorrow, also a chance of thunderstorms tomorrow. Monday's highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us this morning. There's more American firepower headed to Ukraine. The Biden administration says it's providing cluster bombs as Ukraine runs low on ammunition in its fight to repel Russian forces. More than 100 countries have agreed not to use them because of the risk undetonated explosives pose to civilians. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Mart Hurtling is with us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. It's, it's great to be with you today. You have had experience with this type of weapon. Can you explain how these cluster bombs work and how effective they are? You know, first of all, what I'd say is these are not bombs. These are artillery rounds. They're fired like a normal artillery round from a cannon. And in the case of these rounds, they contain somewhere between 72 and 88 small munitions, about the size of a small Coke can. Uh, and each one of those acts as a grenade. What they are designed to do is come down on the top of vehicles, hard targets. They can't clear minefields and they aren't very effective in clearing trench lines. In Desert Storm, uh, when the unit I was with, we were hit accidentally with five rounds of cluster munitions. Immediately, it's, it's first of all, it's like being inside of a popcorn popper because these rounds are exploding all over the ground if you've seen films of this. It did cause uh, 31 soldiers to have casualties, but of those 31, uh, 29 of them returned to duty with shrapnel wounds. That was my case. Two of them were medevaced out uh, and treated at a hospital, but, but they recovered. But the biggest issue are the fact that not all of the small bomblets explode when they hit the ground. So why don't these bomblets detonate when they hit the ground? If the round hits at an angle and the detonator doesn't hit the ground or doesn't hit something correctly, then it becomes a dud. Or if it hits a very soft surface and there's a high dud rate. Uh, in, in the past, that dud rate has been anywhere from 5 to 10%. The Department of Defense says these rounds have been tested and they'll go somewhere between 1% to 2%. I think that's a conservative estimate. But even with that percentage, you're talking about several hundred thousand unexploded pieces of ammunition that are littering the battlefield that civilians can pick up, young children can pick up. And there are places around the world today that, that still have these unexploded munitions all over a small part of their territory. So then I have to ask, why is the U.S. making the decision when these, you know, weapons don't sound very precise and because, you know, they could injure civilians, why do they have to send them over to Ukraine or why make the decision to send them over to Ukraine? Well, part of that, since the beginning of the war, we have been providing precision artillery rounds. But those rounds, first of all, are very expensive and we've been running out of them. So these are uh, literally, I, I believe the Department of Defense has said, okay, we don't really want to provide these rounds, but it is a bridge strategy to give the kind of artillery ammunition that Ukraine needs right now, because they are in the middle of this offensive operation. Ukraine and the Biden administration have pointed out that Russia has been using cluster bombs throughout its siege of Ukraine. And they stress that this is Ukraine, 
defending its own territory and civilians, they're going to be very mindful about how these munitions are deployed. Does that give you any more assurance about sending American cluster bombs to Ukraine? It, it does slightly, Aisha. I'll, I'll say that candidly. Minister of Defense Reznikov of Ukraine has said repeatedly that he has five principles for using these weapons. First of all, they'll only be used against the enemy in the intent of deoccupying Ukrainian territory of Russians. They will not use them in urban areas like the Russians have been doing. Ukraine will keep records of where the rounds are fired, and those records of those locations will be prioritized when the war is over for demining operations or rendering these munitions safe. So they're going to have to send crews into areas where these rounds have been fired to make sure that they are safely destroyed. Um, the last condition that Reznikov said was that Ukraine will report the effectiveness of these rounds to all the allies. And truthfully, the majority of the NATO allies have signed the ban against these weapons. So the United States in, in sending these munitions are kind of running contrary to what the rest of NATO wants them to do. And, and by the way, if I can add to that, uh, for the last several months, another NATO ally that has not signed the ban, Turkey, has been contributing uh, these munitions to Ukraine for the last several months, and they have proven to be effective in some fights. That's General Mark Hurtling. General, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Aisha. Now that the Supreme Court has removed racial preference from the college admissions process, we wondered if there will be anything left for college DEI offices to do. DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. The people who help support students from marginalized backgrounds. Paulette Granberry-Russell is president of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Obviously, this isn't just idle curiosity on our part. Lawmakers in Florida and Texas have passed legislation to defund DEI offices at public universities. Um, there are similar bills in Ohio and the Carolinas. What's the response from your members? Well, our response has been to uh, organize and help to better educate local communities, our state legislators, more broadly, the country to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. That education is an essential part of dispelling some of the myths and misrepresentations of the work. What are some of those myths and misrepresentations that you feel like you're having to push back on? The first is that somehow uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion represents excluding individuals from uh, higher education that would otherwise be situated in those spaces absent efforts to increase diversity. And when I define diversity, I mean that broadly. It extends beyond race and gender and LGBTQ status. You mean the idea that DEI efforts are a way to, say, you know, keep out white male students? Yes. It's a way of demonizing and I think playing to individuals who, who believe that uh, we're engaging in efforts to exclude uh, more deserving individuals, whether that's students, whether that's our faculty, whether it's our staff. 
In some cases, like at the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville, the DEI office is closing, but those staff members are not losing their jobs, according to the university. Instead, they're being reassigned to places like human resources or student success centers. Is that something that your organization would support? That would not be the preferred approach. A central diversity office provides that kind of oversight, if you will, guidance, support. If the institution is saying, you know, we're looking at how many students based on gender or race are in um, the Department of Physics, where we know we've historically been underrepresented by women and persons of color. Having a central unit helps support what's being done in that Department of Physics to help build the capacity of that Department of Physics to understand the unique ways that you have to recruit to ensure that you're getting more women and persons of color to think about physics. Do you have any worry that the Supreme Court um, may also at some point say that specific outreach to certain groups or or looking at the numbers and saying, um, you know, say in physics that, you know, these groups are underrepresented, that that type of targeted recruiting um, could also run afoul of, you know, what they, how they view the Constitution. Well, you know, I I think uh, what the court is addressing are the decisions that are being made to admit students. Uh, which is very different from this question of how you recruit. But I guess at this point, many of us are questioning how far is the reach of that opinion. What is your advice for students who are watching all of this play out right now? I think students need to do as much homework as they can about the institution. Um, I think too often uh, students, if they're first generation They have no real understanding sometimes, nor do they have members within their family who can guide them in that process. But be more scrutinizing about what you see. Ask about the programs that you have that support students like me, okay, and the way that what's important to me. I'm interested in music. Tell me more about the programs and and the ways in which you support students in music. You know, it's it's that um, sense of... Is this going to be a place that I feel wanted, welcome, supported? Too often, I think our students, or prospective students, they've identified the the school that they want to go to and and, and whatever it is that attracts them to it, uh, but they don't often know how to advocate for themselves. Learning to do that is very important. That's Paulette Granberry-Russell. She is the president of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story from England on the 2023 Snail Racing World Championship. This is the first weekend of the Sumner Tunnel shutdown. The aging structure is closed for repairs through the end of next month. To get tips for navigating around the Sumner Tunnel closure, go to WBUR.org.
It's 74 degrees in Boston with some fog this morning, mostly cloudy skies today and highs in the upper 70s. A chance of some showers tonight, lows in the upper 60s overnight. Showers likely tomorrow, also a chance of some thunderstorms and Monday's temperatures in the mid-70s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. President Biden heads to Europe today on a trip designed to shore up relations with U.S. allies. He's to attend a NATO summit in Lithuania, where members are to consider whether Sweden should join the alliance. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has left Beijing after a four-day visit. She said her meetings with Chinese officials were direct and productive. She said the U.S. sees the world as big enough for both countries to thrive. And a search is underway in central China for at least seven people missing after a landslide yesterday. Officials say six people were rescued, dug out from rubble at a highway construction site. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I have three young kids and they love social media, especially videos of other families and other kids playing with new toys or having lavish birthday parties. The reason there is so much of that content is because there's money to be made from product placements, ads, and views. That may be great for influencer parents, but what about the kids? Well, as you're about to hear, it can be rough, like resulting in abusive behavior and self-harm. Hanisha Harjani is a freelance journalist in Berkeley, California, who's been looking into what's now called sharing teen. You know, when parents share everything about the experience of parenting or raising a family online. But before sharing was a term, there was what we called mommy blogs, and they kind of really got this whole trend started. One thing about this is that even though it's like happening all over the place, it's still like fairly new, generally. Were you able to find a lot of information about the impacts of this? Yeah, the lack of information actually really surprised me. The experience of these kids is often being gatekept by their parents. And, you know, though it seems really wholesome on its face, there's definitely a power dynamic there. I, I would assume, though, that the upside, for the parents at least, is that they can probably make some good money. And that may be the justification for you got to get out here and make these videos. Totally. And along 
with the real downsides I found reporting this story, it's also true that blogging and blogging have been beneficial specifically to moms searching for a community to share their experiences about the struggles and joys of motherhood, which can kind of be isolating. I interviewed one of the first really successful mommy bloggers. She said that the blog was really instrumental for her when she was a new mom and with a crying baby, lots of diapers and no sleep. Everything hurts. Everything is messy and dirty. And I, you know, I was so bewildered in early motherhood. That's Heather Armstrong. She's been in the news lately because she recently died by suicide. When I spoke to her last fall, our conversation was about her writing. Two decades ago, she had one of the hottest blogs on the internet. It was called Deuce.com, and it was an outlet for the chaos she felt as a new mother. I had no idea what I was doing. And it turns out, there were a lot of other moms out there having similar frustrations. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, we can talk about this with each other. We can say this is hard. What do we do? What are the answers? And laughing about it. That's what made her blog such a success. It became a place for new moms to commiserate. And Heather was candid. She told it like it is. These days... I look around at Instagram today and everything is just extremely clean. <laughs> she said, mommy blogging today isn't about finding community. It's become way more commercial. You know, picture perfect. I imagine that there's probably a lot of quiet depression going on with women scrolling through all the really pretty things on Instagram. This shift in the mommy blogging space started when advertisers saw just how many moms were clicking on these blogs and they wanted to get in front of that audience too. Heather experienced this change firsthand. As her blog's audience grew, advertisers started to reach out to her. And the money was enticing, but that meant she had to do product placements and her kids could no longer just draw pictures at home. Instead, they'd go to a decked out condo that somebody rented out for them and use art supplies that a brand had given them and pose for pictures. And it just became this drag where my kids were like, okay, we just wanna, just wanna watch you know, a show and do some art. Ultimately, this trend towards brand sponsorships and sterile countertops and immaculate homes, it became too much. It's what led her to walk away from her influencing gig. But Heather maintained that her kids were fine being part of her blog. My kids do not care. I asked Heather if her 13-year-old child might be willing to talk to me about their experience being featured online, and she said, maybe. But when I followed up with Heather about the request, she stopped responding to me. I was able to use clues from Heather's blog to track down her other kid, her 19-year-old daughter. I knew her full name from the blog, Lita Elise Armstrong. And I found out that she was going to Drexel University through some comments I found on a subreddit where people talk about the things that mommy bloggers like Heather post. So hello, how's it going? Hi. It's pretty good. We got on a Zoom call in March and Lita pushed back on her mom's claim. She has had photos where I was like, can you take this down? Sometimes she's like, okay, but sometimes like she gets weird about it. Lita says she gets it. It made a lot of money for the family, and she saw firsthand how it helped her mom feel supported and how it also helped other parents, too. I think maybe, like, she had asked permission to post certain things. I feel like that would have made me feel a little, a little more secure. Lita says the blog was kind of a double-edged sword. I was a little frustrated because, like, I have all this content being put 
of me online. And sometimes it's not even accurate. Lita worries sometimes about whether this digital footprint might limit the opportunities available to her. She's thinking about it as she starts applying to jobs and internships. I think it's scary to think that, like, I can be judged off of that. Lita is among a growing number of people struggling with this dilemma. I actually first heard about this problem through someone named Lou. Lou also asked that we only use first names for them and for their mom, Jody, due to concerns for Lou's safety based on past experiences related to the blog. For my mom, the blog was her, her coping mechanism for everything she was going through. Lou's mom, Jody, was blogging around the same time that Heather's blog, Deuce, was in its heyday, though Jody's blog didn't have the millions of followers that Heather's blog did. While Deuce.com was tightly curated for its audience, Lou's mom could let it all hang out. She was practically raising her five kids by herself, so that was what the community was for her. The community that presented itself to me was a little bit darker. Lou was just nine when the blog began. I got more creepy requests. These adults would reach out to Lou online, and like many other kids growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, Lou spent a lot of time on the computer. Sometimes Lou would even comment on their mom's blog. Silly stuff like, hi mom, or like fart humor, or, you know, this is Rocky and I've taken over. Rocky. That was the name of the family dog, but it was also what the family called Lou when they were growing up. Their mom's audience would use Lou's username, which was attached to these comments, to track Lou down on other sites, chat rooms, to start conversations. At first, it wasn't completely obvious to Lou who these people were supposed to be. They were strangers, but... They already had all of the names to people in our family and, like, places that we'd been. It felt way more intimate than it really was. Lou talks about it like a warped parasocial relationship. That word is usually used to describe those one-sided relationships where fans believe they have a real connection with a celebrity. But in this case, the power dynamics are all jumbled. There's no way for that child to have autonomy in that situation. The power is on the other side with whoever's consuming the content. And those adults controlling the conversation, they would message Lou in these online chat rooms, and then they'd suggest to move to phone or video calls. And on these calls, Lou says, there was a lot of flirting. Like, you look so great in this picture. Um, I wonder what you would look like without this on. And now, Lou can even see how some of these adults were grooming them by trying to build trust. Like, saying that they wanted to be there for, like, emotional support or, like, see what you're going through. Because Lou was going through a hard time. And strangers online could see that from how their mom talked about them on the blog. The persona Lou's mom created for them online was impacting Lou's real life. Lou says it wasn't the only reason, but it was one of the reasons that contributed to them dropping out of high school. Soon after, Lou moved away from home. But Lou realized that the situations they were moving into were not always safer. Years of being approached inappropriately online had lowered their guard for creeps in real life. The first place they moved into after leaving home seemed really good on paper. There was this guy who was like, oh yeah, I'm a deployed soldier. My wife and my 13-month-olds are looking for a roommate and someone to help clean up around the house. But then 
Lou says the husband started to cross boundaries. Immediately, he went into, like, flirting, asked if I wanted to call him master. This was awful and disappointing to Lou, but it wasn't necessarily new. I was like, yeah, this is fine. (laughs) This is fine. This is how I'm used to being talked to online. (laughs) Lou and Lita's stories are just the beginning. I mean... Have you been on social media? It's full of kids being featured by their parents online. I just want to note that today is the first time that I've introduced myself with my legal name in three years because I'm terrified to share my name. This is Cam. When she was a kid, she was also the subject of a mommy blog. And I actually reached out to her for an interview for this piece. But she never got back to me. What I did find was her public testimony for Washington State House Bill 1627. It aims to protect the interest of minor children who are featured on for-profit family blogs. At 15, I was in a car accident in which the fire department had to come with the jaws of life to remove a car door off of my leg. Instead of a hand being offered to hold, a camera was shoved in my face. The Washington bill has stalled in the state legislature, but a similar bill in Illinois was approved by lawmakers earlier this year, and the governor is expected to sign it into law. It's kind of a big deal because it's hard to make laws about parenting, and that's for good reason. Legislating parenting can quickly turn racist or xenophobic, but family blogging is kind of in its own category, a strange gray area where parenting and business overlap. Here's Washington State Representative Christine Reeves. She sponsored House Bill 1627, and she's a mom who also sometimes features her kids online. The reality is our kids don't always get a choice, though, in how they're included in an online presentation. Both the proposed laws in Washington and Illinois aim to provide children with the rights to their likeness or their image. That means they'd get paid for participating in content creation. You know, like how children in entertainment have been all this time. Children on online platforms aren't usually considered to be in the entertainment industry, but that's what these bills would be changing. You know, the fight we got into in that committee was like, well, child labor laws should already cover this. But the reality is child labor laws were written for physical workplaces. Child labor laws never conceived of online brand profiles and content creation. Developmental psychologist, professor, and British Psychological Society member John Oates knows this all too well. He's been working with children in media settings for much of his professional life. He even helped create regulations in the UK to safeguard child actors taking part in performances on the stage and the screen. But before we even began our interview, he mentioned there really just wasn't much research done into children on the internet in this context. It's hard to get access. I can relate to that. I reached out to so many current parent influencers for this story. Not one of them got back to me. I guess their fears would be that it might show that their work is more harmful, perhaps, than they would like to believe it is. According to Oates, there's an inherent power imbalance when it comes to children who are featured heavily on their parents' social media. Children are almost inevitably disempowered if an adult asks them to do something. Where Oates has had most of his experience, in the professional media spaces of film and television, parents of child actors play a really important role. Ideally, they act as a buffer between the production's interest and the child's needs. But 
When the parent becomes a producer, as is the case for most social media influencers, this relationship is distorted. I would say an unacceptable conflict of interest. This is where legislation may help. At the very least, it will make parents think twice about what they're posting. When I reached out to Lou's mom, Jody to get her comments on Lou's experience with the blog, Jody said, quote, Lou feels traumatized and scarred by my blogging, and I accept the fault, unquote. To hear more of Hanisha's reporting and our conversation, listen to this week's The Sunday Story on Up First, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. On your marks, get set, go! If you've ever attended a race event, you've probably heard these commands. Everyone gets in position and then they dazzle onlookers with their speed. But this weekend in Norfolk, England, a different kind of race. The opening words, ready, steady, slow. I'm Nicholas Dickinson, uh, and I'm one of two snail masters responsible for the running of the Snail Racing World Championships. 2023 Snail Racing World Championships. Yes, you heard that exactly right. What better way to celebrate our notoriously slow and slimy friends than having them race? And in England, they've been doing it for a while. The first snail racing um, records that we've got date from 1970. um, And we know that the event has been held annually ever since uh, at Congham in Norfolk. The championship pits dozens of snails against each other, putting their gliding skills to the test. The slimy contestants are placed on a round table. Two circles are marked in a white tablecloth, one at the center, the starting point. And then the second circle, which is the finish line, is exactly 13 inches away from the inner circle, the start line. 13 inches from start to finish. One small step for man, one giant ooze for snail kind. Dickinson says the event is serious business for those who take part in it. Trainers prepare months in advance, selecting the speediest gastropod they can find in their backyards, training them to achieve greatness on the big day and they uh, need to look after them and entice them out of their shells with uh, lettuce and other such um, goodies and decide who they're going to um, put their um, hopes on to, to win the world championships. The championship is BYOS. That's bring your own snail. <laughs> but those who wish to participate and did not get a chance to select and train their own speed demon Well, what's the opposite of a speed demon? Speed angel? (laughs) They can still get in on the action. The snail masters have them covered. Anyone's allowed to participate, um, and they can either bring their own snail or they can rent one of ours. Once the snails are set and ready to glide, it's off to the races. Trainers and fans cheer on their favorite snails just like they would in the stadium. That's where it gets exciting. Their trainers uh, all shout and uh, holler for their their respective snails to try and encourage them across the finish line. And they could be cheering for a while. Dickinson says it can take up to six minutes for some snails to complete the race. But there is one time every trainer wants to beat. Two minutes. That's the record set in 1995 by Archie, the fastest snail the world has ever seen. 
he's generally regarded as the greatest snail of all time, Archie the Goat. And he's talked about every year with great fondness. And it's his record that's now stood for more than 25 years that everyone tries to emulate or get even close to. But even if no one beats Archie, there are still worthy prizes for the winners, a pewter mug for the trainer, and a whole bunch of lettuce for the champion. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. The city of Worcester has launched a pilot program to send crisis response teams on emergency mental health calls. UMass Memorial's Community Health Link is contracting with Worcester to run the program. During the pilot, when someone calls 911 because of a mental health or substance abuse crisis, clinicians and case managers will accompany police. The goals include de-escalating the situation, getting the person help as quickly as possible, and reducing arrests and the use of hospital emergency rooms. Framingham is holding a Health Connector Fest today. The festival at Framingham State University will help people learn about health insurance options. The event also features live music, lawn games, and food. It kicks off at noon. Some service changes on the MBTA's red line take effect tomorrow. Shuttles will replace weekday evening trains between South Station and Braintree after 7.30 this week and next. Beginning Tuesday, shuttles also will replace trains between JFK UMass and North Quincy starting at around 8.45 p.m. This afternoon at Fenway Park, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the A's. It's 74 degrees in Boston, some fog this morning, mostly cloudy skies today, and highs in the upper 70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, I ask Mariska Hargitay, Captain Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU, if her role carries over into her real life. Are you a good detective? Are you, like, good at finding your husband's lost phone, for example? Well, I found his first two mistresses. Ooh. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. You can find us just by staying tuned to this station. Catch us for this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. An update now on Jonah Kinnickstein. He's the figurative painter we told you about in January. In the 1950s, Kinnickstein was on the verge of making it big. But then the taste of the art world changed. He never quit and was still painting at age 99. Well, now he's 100. And he, so here's NPR's Matthew Sherman. For a while, it seemed like Jonah Kinnigstein was going somewhere. He won a Fulbright, got into the Whitney Museum, and caught the attention of a prominent gallery owner. I went down with some photos, and she says, all right, we'll take you on for a while. That gallerist was Edith Halpert. She represented painters who've become legends, like Jacob Lawrence, Ben Shahn, and Georgia O'Keeffe. She held famous American artists, so it really was a good place to be. Halpert was such an important part of the art world then that the Jewish Museum in New York organized an exhibit about her a few years ago. Rebecca Shaken was its curator. I can't imagine how he felt at the time. It must have been like winning the lottery. Once, Life magazine even profiled her, along with nine of her artists. Kinnigstein was one of them. So this is an article that ran in Life magazine in 1952. New crop of painting protégés. Except what happened next changed art history forever and derailed Kinnigstein's career, hopes, and dreams. In the years after World War II, figurative art, that modeled more or less on real life, coexisted with abstract art, like Jackson Pollock's drip paintings or Mark Rothko's color fields. But eventually, abstract art won the day. All kind of modes of art making that had seemed to work in the past, a kind of figurative mode of showing people in pain or in anguish. It didn't seem like it could really capture the sort of general sense of existential dread. Kinnigstein was a figurative painter. His subjects were rabbis, saints, circus barkers, often exaggerated and expressionistic, but mimicking real life. By 1960, he couldn't convince anyone to give him a show. The rejection stung. I mean, I made painting after painting. And uh, I always felt, you know, I was doing my best. To him, abstract painting took no talent, no skill, no ability to observe the world around you. That's, of course, a common complaint about modern art. You know, I saw a guy right in front of my eyes going from real, real painting to, uh, you know, like he laid the painting down on a floor and he started to splash around. I couldn't talk to that guy. I really couldn't talk to him. Kinnickstein married, had two kids, and made his living doing lithographs and commercial art. In 1961, he designed Bloomingdale's first ever collectible shopping bag, and he never stopped painting. His studio on the third floor of his house in Brooklyn has got hundreds of his paintings in it. They're of cabarets, dance halls, churches, or Jewish shtetls. The figures look grotesque, emaciated, or like they're having fun at the expense of someone else. This is Coney Island. I was born in Coney Island. It's a painting of a funhouse, a devil standing above the entrance with a sign. Hellhole. Then there's an impressionistic one of St. Anthony with a long beard and tattered clothing. He was tempted by women, you know, and uh, he was a religious guy. Kinnickstein also draws cartoons. 
They look like something out of a 19th century political magazine, except his lampooned the art establishment that promoted abstract painting. Here's the original engraving. One of them is based on a famous Rembrandt, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, except the cadaver on the bed is labeled figurative painting, and the men around him, cutting him up, are gallery dealers, critics, curators, and auction houses. All these guys are making fun of them. They're all wearing funny hats. A few times, Kinnigstein took these cartoons to New York's gallery district, Soho, and pasted them onto building walls and lampposts. Getting into arguments with people who would come by, then people taking them off, wanting him to sign them. That's Eileen, his second wife. I was in the getaway car, you know. <laughs> I drove the getaway car. Kinnigstein's long since reconciled himself to not being popular. Oh, I can't change anybody's mind. No. And recently, he's gotten a little recognition. Fantagraphics, arguably the most important art comics publisher in the U.S., came out with a collection of his cartoons in 2014. Gary Groth knew he wanted to publish them the day he opened Kinnigstein's submission. They were clearly not drawn by a young person because they displayed a level of craft. They were also extraordinarily well drawn. And then I looked at the content and every single one of them was a ferocious attack on abstract expressionism. Next, Groth turned his attention to Kinnigstein's paintings. I thought he was at least as good a painter as he was an editorial cartoonist. And painting was, was actually his first love. That book, Unrepentant Artist, The Paintings of Jonah Kinnigstein, appeared last summer. Abstract expressionism is long since gone, followed by pop art, minimalism, postmodernism. Now, figurative painting is sort of coming back, but that's not why Kinnigstein's doing it. I don't paint for anybody, you know? I know what I want. In June, Jonah turned 100 years old and celebrated at a restaurant in Brooklyn. Happy He was surrounded by his children, grandchildren, nieces, great-nieces, and a great-nephew, and even a great-great-niece. The tables were littered with snapshots of his paintings on miniature wooden easels that guests could take home as party favors. Jonah was in the center of it all, wearing a baseball cap his son had made for him with a single word stitched on it, unrepentant. Matthew Sherman, NPR News, New York. Later today on All Things Considered, a visit to a place of contemplation and healing. It's Empty Cloud Monastery in West Orange, New Jersey. Buddhist monks there seek happiness by giving up the trappings of the modern world. Essentially from the fear of missing out, from FOMO, we go to JOMO, the joy of missing out. And their doors are open to anyone, not just Buddhists, who are curious enough about JOMO to make a visit. It's the latest installment of Enlighten Me, where NPR's Rachel Martin travels near and far to talk about what it takes to build a life of meaning. Listen live on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. The new movie Earth Mama tells the story of Gia. 
She's a mother of two who works for a portrait photographer, helping stage perfect pictures of family life. But her life is far from perfect. Her two children were taken away by Child Protective Services. Her prepaid phone is running out of credit, and she's very pregnant. Gia is played by Tia Namora in the movie Earth Mama, which was written, directed, and produced by Savannah Leaf. And Savannah Leaf joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The main character, Gia, in the story, like what really struck me about her is like, here's this Black mother who has so few resources. And being a mother, Lord knows, it requires a lot of resources and community and help. And Gia is expected to figure this out without any help. What did you want to show about Black motherhood? I wanted to show how much pressures, first of all, there is for Black mothers, you know, Black mothers are not just mothering their own kids, but oftentimes throughout history have been mothering other people's children as well. And there's like this expectation to be a mother, to hold it all together, to be an incredible mother, a strong mother, even through so many financial difficulties, so many systems that are breaking families apart. So for me, I wanted to show how this mother is handling it all. We see Gia very pregnant. We don't see like when her children were taken away. We don't know really about her relationship with her family other than her sister. Why keep the scope narrow? I was trying to think of how can we make the audience feel with her during these like peak situations? How can we take people on that journey with her? And part of that is not giving an easy out, like an easy, oh yeah, this makes sense because this happened to her. That's an easy way to- To, um, to try to justify, like so exactly. people go, oh, well that happened to her in the past. So that's why, so then that it's like justifies the sympathy. You have to like have gone through certain yeah. things and then people will give you a break. And then also on top of that, it enables you to think it could be this, it could be that, and it could be any of my friends. It could be someone I know. This movie, like it really deals with sacrifice. A mother could sacrifice everything to keep her kids with her in her own care. And that could be the sacrifice. Or sometimes a a person may do things that are beneficial to their children, but it may keep them apart from their child. And that can be the sacrifice, right? Yeah. I think like she has to sacrifice so much of herself for her children, you know? And there's like a mutual... I love there. She's also seeking love for herself through her children. And you see that when she gets a visitation with her children here and there for a couple hours a week, and she gets that kind of love back. So it's, it's ultimately for her children, but it's also for herself because seeing her children do well, do better than maybe she did as a child is something for herself as well. Gia does have some consideration of giving her third child up for adoption. What is your relationship to adoption in your own life? The film was kind of inspired by my relationship to my own sister. When I was 16 years old, my mom adopted my sister. And um, I remember meeting her birth mother and just feeling 
I felt very connected to her, even though I was only met her a few times. When I initially wrote the script, it was kind of inspired by my imagination of what she was going through. Then I made this documentary short, which was kind of like emotional research and meeting with women who had their children taken away from them and also women who had given their children up for adoption and kind of feeling the weight of both of those scenarios. And then from there, I just did further research. And so it kind of expanded and became less of like a, you know, reflection of this specific instance, but then became almost like this collective shared story. The film does a good job navigating because it's it's complicated like adoption foster care especially like you know in the in the black community like this this idea of like the best home for the child and like the place that's more stable but also the emotional weight of having your child taken from your arms and so it can be very complicated while I have obviously had like an incredible experience with adoption just with my own sister. I wanted to dive into like what's behind that, what's the root of this scenario, but also all of these other scenarios. Um, that moment you're talking about when a child gets taken away from somebody's arms, whether it's adoption or whether it's CPS, the physicality of that, there's like this hum. Actually, someone in the documentary mentioned it that I, it just has always resonated with me. She said her soul was kind of humming after she gave her child up for adoption. Like her body wanted to breastfeed, her body wanted to physically have her child in her arms, but her child was no longer there. Women are having to live out there, having you know, carried a child for so many months and then that child is then gone <laughs> away from their body. Like how do you keep going if you're dealing with addiction or financial difficulty? How do you physically, emotionally bear that weight? Nobody really talks about that. Yeah. And to be clear, because it could be the, the safest situation for you to, to go. It could be the best situation. But even if it's the right situation, I think as you get older, you realize even doing the right thing for you can hurt like hell. Yeah. And there's still healing that needs to be done. Before you became a filmmaker, you had a very different career. You were an Olympic volleyball player. Like, how do you make the transition to filmmaker? Now, I had a guess that if you are, like, driven enough to be an Olympic volleyball player, you just go hard into everything you do. Am I right about that or am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. I think I'm really tall and I'm athletic. So first thing I did when I was young was play sports. And that's kind of how I define myself. And um, then I got injured. I had to kind of figure out what was the next thing I could possibly do while I was recovering. So in that time, I just started exploring art. I found film and it became this thing I became obsessed with. I felt like I could pour myself into it. But I also had that kind of work ethic from being an athlete. And I think when you learn young, what it takes to have drive and to go through the ups and downs of sports, all of a sudden when you translate that into other work, you find yourself excelling because you know what it takes. That's Savannah Leaf. She is the writer, director, and producer of the new movie, Earth Mama. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. This is a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Join the Radio Boston team Thursday, July 20th at City Space for an evening with Boston chefs showing off their best grilling skills in a live cooking competition. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 74 degrees in Boston, some fog around this morning, a mostly cloudy Sunday with temperatures reaching the upper 70s. A chance of showers tonight and tomorrow showers likely with a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the mid-70s. Marry young, get a place, have kids, grow old together. Once upon a time, that was the expectation. But now, census data shows, a quarter of Americans are waiting to marry until their 40s or later. I can have a very committed relationship that I don't expect to culminate in either cohabitation or marriage, and I can maintain my independence and autonomy. The new paradigm on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.